brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, people. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and it seems like since the start of this wild ride, humanity has been interacting with something else of a higher intelligence just beyond the physical dimension. Call them spirits, fairies, gods, or aliens, but it's clear that something out there knows a lot more about reality's structure than we do. Are we on some human energy farm? Is there an ancient predator hunting us from the shadows of our liminal spaces? Might there be a group of beings trying to use crop circles and psychedelic encounters to nudge humanity into understanding that it's all consciousness, man? There are many thoughts and theories as to what this all is, but in our modern slice of the human story... The narrative shifts to recovered bodies, crashed ships, an invisible college of scientists, and the privileged few who study what's been found or left just beyond the prying eyes of the general public. Well, today's powerhouse guest, Grant Cameron, is one of the most knowledgeable researchers dedicated to the UFO space, disclosure discourse, the true nature of the phenomenon, and the key to understanding it, consciousness. Grant became involved in ufology in May 1975 with personal sightings of an object which locally became known as Charlie Red Star. The sightings occurred about 25 miles north of the Canada-U.S. border with hundreds of people seeing objects at the same time during a prolonged flap of sightings. In past years, Grant turned his research to the involvement and actions of the presidents of the United States in the UFO problem. He's made 20-plus trips to the National Archives and most of the various presidential archives looking for presidential UFO material. Eventually, he stopped trying to break the government and deep private cone of silence and felt that the ones who really know the phenomenon best are the experiencers, which led him to focus on that curious interplay between this high strangeness and consciousness. He's written several great books along the way, had his own radio show called The Cameron Files, and produces a lot of content on his YouTube channel, Links and info about him can all be found on his website, beyondpresidentialufo.com, and it is a real pleasure to have him here. The legendary deep diver, UFO question dissector, and bright mind for our troubled times, Grant Cameron, my man, welcome to the higher side. Well, thanks, Greg. Your intro summed it all up. There's nothing more to say. (laughs) 
<laughs> I like it. I like it. And uh, thanks for taking the time. I am a big fan of the work you do, and I'm always impressed with your recall when it comes to the vast material you've studied and spoken about. I think so many people who look into the UFO alien question start with that nuts and bolts stuff, and if they stick with it long enough, they realize it's weirder than that, and consciousness needs to be better understood to truly unlock the UFO mystery. And of course, your road is a long one, but maybe you can elaborate for the unfamiliar on how your understanding and research path has evolved from where it started to where you are now decades later. Okay, so it all starts for me back when I'm, I guess, a late teenager. I'm interested in the work of Edgar Cayce. I studied it, went to the institute that they have there in Virginia Beach. Was at university, was kind of lost at university, trying to figure out how in heaven's name are you going to make any money out of this nonsense, you know, calculus and stuff. I couldn't figure out why I was there. And then in 1975, that's when things changed for me. I've had four major events in my life, and the one was 1975. So you described in the intro, there was a flap of sightings that occurred at a town called Carmen, Manitoba. And actually, we were just back there last, a couple days ago. And that's the first time I've been back in, well, I've been back once in 40 years, but we went back there. There's a documentary film crew out trying to do a documentary on it. So I live in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, which is a fairly big city. And we used to drive around the city and do nothing, just drive around. And the stories of this sighting stuff started to happen in Carmen, Manitoba and started in about February of 1975. And I said to my friend, I said, why don't we go out and see what they're looking at? And he said, yeah, OK, we'll go. And we never went. And then in May of 1975, what happened is the local TV station, the CKY TV station here, was a number of stations out there trying to film this thing. And they managed to catch this thing on the ground. And the cameraman, as he was, the object was eight miles down the road. As he's looking down the road, this thing is on the ground and it's glowing up and it glows back down, glows up. And the night before, they had almost got it on film and he decided, I've got to get something on film. So the next time this thing glows up again, I'm going to shoot. And almost like the, whatever the intelligence, the UFO is, it said, are you ready to shoot? Because as he pushed the trigger, this thing jumped up in the air and there was people actually very close to it on the ground and they thought it had disappeared. It actually jumped about 5,000 feet in the air in three frames of the film. And so this thing went viral. They did an eight minute documentary on this thing. It created this flash frame, one frame of film where the entire horizon lit up. And it went flying across the sky and it was flying in sort of a wave formation and stuff. And the TV station, NBC, picked it up. Jalen Hynek, the major researcher, came to try to get two copies of this film, said it was the best nocturnal light film he'd ever seen with all these 14 people that were involved in this filming of it. And this went on the TV in, in Winnipeg, where I live. And then I said to my friend, come on, let's go see what they're looking at. And I always describe it as you buy the lottery ticket and you know there's a chance you can win, but you're not going to win. So we went out there and I figured, you know, everybody else can see stuff. When we go out there, nothing's going to happen. So we went into town, out of the town, looked around and we're looking around at what's everybody looking at here and really couldn't. You could see planets and whatever. And I, I just like, I don't know what they're looking at. And I think Venus was setting at the time. And it looked kind of weird, but I go, that can't be what they're looking at. So my friend says, well, go back in the town one more time. We drove out. We're going to go back in the town one more time. If we don't see anything, let's go home. I said, yeah, fantastic. It's been a total waste of time. So we were outside about a mile out of the city. We turned, go back west into this small town, about 2,000 people. And it appeared from the left to the right. And in the car, nobody said, 
is that what it is? I wonder if that's what they're, everybody just went, there it is. Everybody just instantly knew this is what they were talking about. It was just so bizarre. It looked like it was alive. It was pulsing. It was red. It was like a plasma type object. And it was sort of bobbing up and down. It was moving very, very slow, 30, 40 miles an hour. And it flew right in front of the car down. I don't know, maybe it's hard to tell at night, you know, how big it is or how far it is. But it appeared maybe maybe half a mile down the road right in front of the car. And I remember getting out of the car as the car was still moving. And I was going in behind a set of school buses that were parked outside the town. And I wanted to get to these school buses because I knew it was going to get in behind the school buses. I wouldn't be able to see it anymore. And I just watched it sort of pulse and fly off into nowhere. It just flew off into the northeast. And I was just floored. I grabbed all my friends. I said, man, you got to come see this thing. Two nights later, we were out. There was 28 people. There was people all from all over the place out there trying to see this thing. And that experience, all my friends went home about 1230. I said, no, no, stay, stay. You got to see this. This will change your life. This is unbelievable. I was just like, you know, I fell off the edge of the earth when I saw this thing. And at 1230, my friends said, nah, we're going home. We're going back to Winnipeg. We're hungry. We're going for pizza. And off they went. And there was about eight people left when this thing appeared the second time. And this time it was a completely different object. It was flashing in the sky. Some kids that saw it called it the bouncing ping pong ball. It was bouncing around in the sky. And as it got closer to us, the flashes got closer together. And then it reappeared as this object I'd seen the first night, this red glowing plasma object. It was coming directly at us the second night, very, very low to the ground. And I could see a sort of a green glow on the backside of this thing. And it made this sort of turn and headed off again into the northeast. And I remember standing there looking at it and saying, wow, that could be from another planet. I was just floored. I was actually looking at this thing and thinking, like, where is this thing from? And the car that was beside us, I remember the guy had a, this is when Nikon had the motor drives on the cameras that came out. And the thing was flashing, jumping around the sky, and the one girl couldn't see it. She was freaking out. I can't see it again. She's crying away. And there's people yelling and swearing and jumping around as this thing's coming towards us. And I could hear this motor drive going, click, zzz, click, zzz, and he's unloading the camera as this thing's coming at us. And then they jumped in the car and off they went. The gravel was flying and they started to chase it because you could actually catch up on this thing. It was going so slow. And so then I was totally floored. And I said, well, why is nobody investigating this? Because there had been a lot of sightings and there had been the film and stuff. So I started this pursuit, try to talk to as many people in the town as I could. And at one point I had hundreds of people on a list. Because everybody would squeal on everybody. They'd say, oh, how do you know I saw something? I'd say, oh, so-and-so told me you saw something. And then they'd say, well, okay, it was really nothing. And then they'd tell you it was a flying saucer in the middle of the road or something, some bizarre story. And then they'd say, I wasn't the only one that saw it, you know. And they would send me off to three or four or five other people. And I'd go to those people. And this list started to build with all these people who were sort of ratting each other out. And I put it in a manuscript. And I tried to get it published in Toronto, where all the big publishers are in Canada. And some people read it, but nobody was really, you know, really not that interested. And the local publisher here in Winnipeg, because this is a famous story, she should have done it. And I remember she changed my whole life. She wrote me a letter and said, on the rejection letter and said, Mr. Cameron, you may believe in this kind of stuff. Count me among the unbelievers. And I'm like, wow, I, I, I was just floored. And I said, OK, that's it. No more sightings. This is total nonsense. It's just a total waste of time. And in the book, I described it. These are the kind of stories you tell your grandchildren when you're old and gray. But it really doesn't change anybody's mind. You have to actually see it. So I gave up on the sighting stuff. And I said, you know, I remembered that thing flying off the second night. And I said, hmm, I'm a young guy. You know, I really don't know that much. I'm, you know, in the middle of a country, which is not in a town that's not that significant. And I said, I don't know what's going on, but there's got to be somebody who's know what this is. So I start this pursuit. And I first go to the Canadian government because there's a synchronistic event happens. My father was a pilot for the Canadian government. And there was somebody, a radar tech in his office who had seen a UFO in the Carmen area. 
And my father said, oh, this Ernie Epp guy wants to talk to you. So I go and talk to the guy and he tells me a story and it's just a light in the sky, really nothing significant. And then he says, you know, if you really want to know what's going on with UFOs, you should study what the Canadian government was doing in the early 1950s. And I went, what? What do you mean? He said, I used to work for the program. And I said, you did? And there was only about six people on this program. And this one guy happened to be in my father's office, the synchronicity. So I chased off to Ottawa and the guy who had run the program was Wilbert Brockhouse Smith. And he had famously written a top secret memo. And I didn't discover this till after I started the investigation. But that's where it sort of started. The consciousness thing sort of started. And I didn't realize it until 2012. But he wrote a top secret memo and he was a the head radio guy for the Canadian government. And they were negotiating FM radio frequencies with the Americans. And he'd been down in Washington for a lot of meetings. And when he was in Washington, he said, I, I was interested to find out what's going on. And so I realized if there's smoke, there's got to be fire. And he started asking questions. And he said high level officials told him what was going on. And he writes this top secret memo. And in the memo, it says, and this is November of 1950, flying saucers exist. It's the most highly classified subject in the United States. There's a small group headed by Dr. Vandevar Bush who are trying to figure out the modus operandi of the objects. And it's of tremendous significance to the Americans. And then in 2012, I had this download experience where the next line of the document pops into my head. And he says, we were also told by American officials that other things might be associated with the flying saucers, such as mental phenomena. And the significant part of that is in 1950, nobody had ever talked to an alien yet. The first contacts, direct face-to-face contacts with aliens, wasn't until about a week after the detonation of the hydrogen bomb, when Adamski and Williamson, these two guys, were in the desert in California, and they claim they've got this encounter with this being, and the being says, you know, you got to stop the nuclear weapons and all this kind of stuff. So in 1950, nobody was talking to aliens. So the question came, how did they know mental phenomena was involved? I mean, you know, there was, nobody was even talking about aliens. And so I do that pursuit, and I'm trying to find out in the United States who gave the Canadians the information. And it was this idea, like, I'm trying to find the highest level person that I can because the highest level person will know what's going on and I'm going to find out who that person is and then try to figure out what they know. And so I, we discovered a, there was a guy who was a, an engineer working for the American military who had given a lot of that material to the Canadians. And he said there'd been a crash in the West of the United States and that they had a set of briefings at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and a bunch of scientists like Von Braun, Von Neumann, the guy with the computers, Bush, all these high-level scientists of the time had been invited, and he said, I couldn't go. I was busy working on the dew line. He was running the engineering project for the dew line in Canada where they were picking up Russian you know, launches of missiles and stuff like that. And he was asked the question, well, you're naming all these people, and they're all dead. Is there anybody that still might be alive? This is 1983. And he said, well, there's this one guy. He was a real arrogant guy. He, was, he had a business like me. He was in Pennsylvania. He was at a university. And that got tracked down to be Dr. Eric Walker, who was the former president of Penn State University. And he had 14 honorary doctorate degrees, co-developer of the homing torpedo, chairman of the board of the Institute for Defense Analysis, the top military think tank in the United States. So then I spent eight years chasing this guy. And I didn't really talk to him. I was sort of ran a team of people. And they said, I can get this guy to talk. So I'd give the guy the phone numbers and all this kind of stuff. And we had this discussion with this guy that lasted, I guess, about seven years before he died. And when he was confronted with the whole thing, he said, yeah, I was at the briefing. So what? And the guy went, what do you mean? So what? this is extraterrestrials. This is the most important story. And he said, don't get so excited. You're up against the windmills. Leave it alone. There's nothing you can do about it. Unless you have the mind of Einstein, you're not going to get anywhere. And so we realized that this guy was talking in rhymes and riddles, but he was sort of telling us that this was for real. And then I was really sort of interested. And later on, part of the 
2012 download was one of the expressions that Dr. Eric Walker had given to somebody in one of the interviews. A guy from Great Britain was interviewing him. And he said, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? The guy was asking him the question, like, who's running the thing? Is there 12 guys? Is it an international group? Who's actually in control of this subject? And he said, let me ask you a question. We know about ESP. And the guy said, well, I really don't know. He said, look, unless you understand about ESP and how it works, you will not be taken into the program. Very few people understand how it works. And that was the second of this consciousness thing. This that sort of twisted me in 2012, where I just basically gave up on UFOs and said, no, it's a consciousness problem. And the third one, I had three things that happened in 2012. First was the line from the Canadian government document. Second was Dr. Eric Walker asking us, about ESP being the main thing. And the third was a conversation that took place with Ben Rich, who used to run Lockheed Skunk Works. And it's always been rumored that any back engineering stuff is being done by Lockheed Skunk Works. So Ben Rich ran the program and he made a comment in one lecture at UCLA where he said, we've now discovered the technology to take ET home. We've discovered the mistake in the equation. And one engineer in the room was big into UFOs, confronted him as he was leaving the building and said, you're talking about this I need to know. I'm, I'm interested in propulsion. How does this thing get here? How does it work? And he turned around. He said exactly what Walker had said two years before. He said, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And the guy said, uh, well, it means all things in time and space are connected. And he said, that's how it works and walked out of the building. And so that became my move away in 2012. I chased the presidents. There was no real documents in the presidential libraries. It was clear that even in 1948, Eisenhower had gotten briefings on UFOs, but they're all done orally. So there was really no paper trail to follow. And you assume that the president must know what's going on, but it appeared that they didn't have the full answer. And so in 2012, I'm watching Colin Andrews, who invented the crop circle phenomena in Great Britain and, you know, came up with the term crop circles. He's giving a lecture at a big conference in Phoenix, which was the World UFO Congress. and it's one of these congresses where it goes from 8 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. You don't go to all the lectures. You just sort of pick and choose which lectures and when you're going to eat lunch and stuff. So Colin Andrews was giving this lecture, and I wasn't interested in crop circles. I had no sort of knack for what was going on, but I realized he was a major researcher. And, well, I'll pay him the respect. I'll go watch his lecture see what he's got to say. And he was talking about consciousness and crop circles. And his contention was that 20% of these crop circles were being made by the intelligence behind the phenomena, and the other 80% were also being done. They were getting the hoaxers and putting ideas in their head to put this stuff down. He had all these examples of people who had hoaxed crop circles and would talk about sitting in their living room and suddenly getting an idea to put this crop circle, and they'd go into the field and make a crop circle, the exact crop circle that a bunch of women were in the same field meditating that exact pattern. So when he was giving this lecture, suddenly it was... I wrote a book just recently called Contact Modalities, where I look at 70 different modalities. How do you get into the non-local field? And you can use hypnosis and meditation and psychedelics. And there's all these ways to get out of the conscious ego mind and bypass that and get in the field. And the method I've used all these years is sort of daydreaming. So I'm in the lecture. I really don't want to be there. I'm thinking about, well, I should go across the river to the library. Maybe I'll go for lunch. And I didn't want to be there. And I sort of zoned out. And that's when it happened. It happened instantaneously. And I described this to people, this thing with people who get these download experiences. And I wrote a whole book on, you know, where major inventions and Nobel Prizes come from. And a lot of them come through this sort of a download or a noetic experience. So I'm sitting there and it came instantaneously. It was like a bang. It was in my head. And it was like, oh, that's how it works. And I described people who haven't had the download experience. The hardest thing to explain to people is the fact that when it happens, 
you're being shown reality. It's not like, oh, this is a good idea. It's like, oh, this is for real. This is more real than the real world. This is, you don't have to check this. You don't have to do anything. This is how it works. So I had this absolute certainty that this is how it works. And that changed my whole career. Then I started to move towards this whole idea of the consciousness being part of this whole thing. And in 2013, I was actually giving my first consciousness lecture in Phoenix. And at the end of the lecture, the woman who runs the big Phoenix UFO group said to me, are you still going to talk to Pam? And I said, yeah, I guess so. I thought, well, I must have agreed to talk to this woman. Or so that's good. She's coming to my house on Monday. She wants to talk to you. So I don't know what this is about. And so this Pam, she's in her 70s, comes to the house with her partner. And she says, what did Stacy tell you about me? I said, I don't know. I'm just supposed to talk to you. She says, oh, that's good. She sits down. She starts this whole thing. I've been abducted. I was in the field and the UFOs were there and I was in my diaper and she's going through this whole thing. And it's all these weird stories that you hear all the time from experiencers. And she went on and then suddenly she drops the bomb. She says, oh, and I was flying the craft last night. And I went, what? And she said, yeah, I was flying the craft. I said, you were flying the flying saucer? And she said, yeah. And I was ready to say, you are absolutely nuts. I mean, I've heard a lot of weird stories. This is the craziest thing I ever heard. And so I said to her, I said, they let you fly the flying saucer? And she said, yeah, I've flown three different models. And I said, well, how do you fly a flying saucer? And she said, oh, you do it with your mind. And that was a real key to me because I started chasing experiencers. And I've got 50 people who have flown the flying saucer who have claimed. And I'll cut them off. I'll say, stop. I want to interview you. I want you to start from the beginning. Go to the end. Tell me. I've got U.S. Air Force retired colonel out of Los Angeles, San Francisco. I've got a 747 United Airlines pilot, all these people. And nobody says anything different. They say, oh, it was just a dream. I said, everybody thinks it's a dream. Tell me your dream. And they'll tell the story about they go into the craft and there's somebody behind them. They don't know whether it's humans or whether it's aliens. And they're standing in the craft and they'll get a voice and say, okay, go ahead and do it. And like the retired U.S. Air Force colonel said, I said, I don't know what to do. And they said, you know what to do, just do it. And he went and there was a panel there. And he put his hands on this panel and he said, suddenly he was flying the craft. And whatever he thought is what the craft did. And he described this. He took one hand off the panel and he was waiting for this thing to stall. And then nothing happened. Then he took his other hand, but he left it about a couple inches off the panel and he was still flying the craft. So the 50 people, everybody has said exactly the same thing. It's like they're reading off a script. You go in there, they tell you to do this. You either put your hand on a panel or you put it on a something on a wall, sort of a plaque on the wall, or you put it on a ball and you become one with the craft. The craft is alive and you become one and whatever you think is what the craft does. And you, you can get bizarre stories where the one guy says, they asked him, where would you like to go? And he'd say, oh, I'd like to see the Milky Way from a distance. And he said within one second, sort of the window opens up, the sort of the craft turns transparent on one side. And one second, he said, I'm outside the Milky Way looking back at the Milky Way. So that's when I really started to realize that this was where I had to go. And then in 2017, I had another download experience. Again, I'm walking. So I do a lot of walking. I walk at least 10 miles a day and I listen to podcasts and stuff. So I'm walking downtown. It's a six mile walk and I'm about two miles into it and all of a sudden it comes and for anybody who's had these download experiences you know pick up the pen start writing this is it this is real material and so it's very cold out i take my glove off i got this piece of paper and i'm writing and this stuff is coming into my head one two three this stuff is coming in and what it is 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 it this or is it that so in your introduction you talked about this consciousness thing so it says to me is the world made out of little nuts and bolts if it is well then that's one world and consciousness will emerge from nuts and bolts. But 
if the world's made out of consciousness, then it's a whole different world. Then matter comes out of consciousness. Is the world random? If it's random, then that's one world. But if it's a pattern, then that's a completely different world. Is there one life? If there's one life, that's one world with certain rules. But if there's multiple lives, then, and it was like, you think it's this, it's actually this. It's actually the opposite. And I had about 16 or 17 things came into my head. And then the feeling went away. I put the pen away, put the paper away, started walking again, and it started again. And I ended up with 24 different things. And it was these sort of like, what is reality? So that has been my chase, say, in the last 10 years, is to look at everything in terms of how does this fit into reality? How does reality actually works? And it's the idea that whether you go to Sunday school or whether you go to science Sunday school, we've got a lot of garbage in our head that we just believe because someone told us and we built sort of a worldview. And I'm very much into the right brain, left brain thing that the left brain will build this worldview. And once it builds that worldview, it will not change. And until you have one of these experiences where you have an experience, so it's the thing, whether it's knowledge or whether it's belief. And most people think it's knowledge and it's actually belief. And only through the experience do you actually get the knowledge like you do through one of these download experiences. So that's sort of how it happened. And so I've gotten into a lot with contact modalities. I wrote because I had the modality of this download type thing. So I, I looked at 70 different modalities. So you get all these different things and everybody sort of builds a religion out of theirs. Somebody will say, oh, hypnosis is the way to go. And they, they spend all their time on hypnosis and this is the way to go. Some people will do psychedelics. And I looked at all the modalities and I basically came to the conclusion, it's all that same thing. Consciousness right. is primary. It's all goes back to consciousness and all these different modalities to get into the non-local field are just different paths to the same end result. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm with you there. And uh, that is a great summary of a long, long journey. And the mind aspect is what I wanted to focus on. I have this great quote of yours where you say, it's most significant that in 1947, on day one, when this thing starts, they realize there's a mental aspect and realize that we would learn later, that's how you fly the craft. You use your mind. And this is one of the most provocative areas to me that we have the big crash in 1947. We have Project Paperclip going on between 1945 and 1959. And we have the MK Ultra project starting right there in the early 50s. And it's such curious timing. I'm sure there are a lot of reasons for what they did with MK Ultra and Artichoke and all that. But do you think this UFO tech or the UFO alien question is at least partly what drove the MK Ultra mind cracking research? It may have been, but I think the group is very limited in terms of how many people actually know the consciousness connection. Like you'll get Tom DeLong, who's the To the Stars Academy where he goes to Lockheed, he's allowed to go into a Lockheed skiff, and he's talking, and the head scientist at Lockheed says to him, so how do you think this works? That's all I want to know. How does this work? And he guesses a bunch of stuff. And he had been associated with Dr. Stephen Greer in his early days, Tom DeLong, and he said, well, I think consciousness is involved. And then the head scientist said, now you're talking. And he said, that's all this head scientist wanted to talk about for 45 minutes. Because in 1947, the story has sort of changed as we went through the years, as we got more witnesses, that everybody sort of had the idea that the thing had crashed and there was four dead aliens. And then later on, it became known that it was probably more probable that there was three dead aliens and one live alien. And that's what the answer to that 1950 question was. Well, how did the Americans know to tell the Canadians that there was mental phenomena involved? Because nobody was talking to aliens. 
And the idea would be that they had a live alien and all the reports from the live alien was that he was talking in people's heads. So they knew this sort of thing. They knew consciousness was something that they had to crack. But I think what they were looking at was not so much the UFO aspect, but the idea that if you can get in somebody's mind like this alien was doing, then you can get into, you know, the Russian leader or the Chinese leader's head. and You can put stuff in his head and stuff like that. So they went down that, but they realized in the 1950s that consciousness was something that you could manipulate. And that's the problem I've always had with them is that they're always trying to turn it into some sort of good versus evil thing. And we're going to use this to build weapons out of it. And most of the messages you get from the intelligence say, no, nah, you're going down the wrong road. You're not going to get anything. In fact, there's a story told some of the biggest people that I think know in the sort of the white world about what's going on are people like Hal Putoff, Jacques Vallée, and Kit Green, who was at the CIA. He was the control officer for the remote viewing program. And in the 1980s, they actually had a meeting, a famous meeting that's rumored to happen at the Denny's restaurant. And they said, there's lots of garbage. There's lots of stories here. How do we know what to believe? And they came up with what was called the core story. What do we know for sure? And their conclusion was, number one, we're being interacted by some sort of intelligence. Number two, we've got hardware, recovered hardware, and we're unable to back engineer it. And that's what I believe. So we may have had a craft since 1947. But we can't turn it on. We have no idea. It's like using your thumbprint to open up your cell phone. You need consciousness to turn this thing on. So they've got bodies, they've got crafts, but they still really don't understand how that consciousness thing actually works. And yet the highest level guy that I've dealt with is a guy by the name of Ron Pandolfi. And he's been with the CIA since 1983. He's rumored to be the guy that briefs Trump on UFO type stuff. Very high level guy. I'm not, not even sure if he's with the CIA or who he's with anymore. But he basically talks about all the stuff that is being done on anti-gravity and all that kind of stuff. He basically says it's a techno scam. And this is the whole idea. Is So you may have some research, whether it's remote viewing research or whether it's MKUltra or stuff. But we always think that they've got it all figured out. And in fact, they're having a very hard time doing it. And he started talking about portals. And I'm thinking, well, why is he, is he trying to throw us off with this portal thing? And I now sort of conclude that they really don't have any sort of technology, like anti-gravity technology or NSK. You hear all these stories, they're flying to different planets and stuff. I think that's true, that they don't, they're trying to get money from Congress. So they're in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Armed Services Committee, and they're saying, oh, these aliens could be, a th or these UAPs can be threats, and we have to do something about this, and we can build weapons and technology and stuff like that. But they really don't understand. Pandolfi's the only guy that keeps leaking this story about the portal, and the portal gets into this consciousness thing, that it's all consciousness and the idea that they're popping in and popping out, that they come into our reality and they can become physical. So they can become like a physical craft, almost like a ports. If you've ever studied a ports, most experiencers, I think 60% of all experiencers who claim they've been on board the ship, will talk about these port phenomena. And I, I studied these at great length where they'll say, I'll say to them, do you ever have an experience where something sort of drops out of the ceiling or something moves from one place in the room to another place? And they go, can I go in the next room? Okay, yeah, sure. And they come back with a whole collection of stuff that has appeared from nowhere. And it's that kind of thing that my interpretation is that whatever the intelligence is, it lives in the field where the ghosts live and where the spirits live and the fairies and all that kind of stuff. It's all the same thing. And that they're able to manifest into the physical world. 
And one prime example of that, I started to do a lot of stuff with with seances, with physical seance people. And if you're familiar with the whole New York Times UFO thing, Leslie Kane is the woman who wrote the main article for the UFO thing. She's also into physical mediumship, and she tells this story about being in a, a couple of physical seances where she's sitting at the table and it looks like water is coming up over top of the table and moving towards her, flowing across the table. And all of a sudden, this hand appears out of nowhere and it's right in front of her and she's able to feel the hand and it's warmer than a regular hand and it's softer than a human hand. She can feel the fingernails and the knuckles or whatever. And then the hand bangs it twice on the table and then just sort of demanifests. And that's the whole idea is that whatever I think this phenomenon is, is coming in, is able to manifest into 3D and it lowers its vibration, whatever it's doing, it pops in and it's able to pop back out. The mind thing is the same sort of thing. There's an experiment, if you're talking about MKUltra, they've done a lot of these experiments, but how far they've gotten. The one that I thought was very significant, there's a guy by name, well, this guy, this Kit Green, he used to run life sciences at the CIA and he used to run what was called the weird desk at the CIA. So they had three different guys. Arthur Lundahl was the first guy. He was the guy that briefed President Truman on the the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was uh, ran the photographic interpretation lab for all the, the U-2, SR-71, and spy photographs for analysis. He was very interested in UFOs. And the second guy was this Kit Green, and then later is the guy now is Ron Pandolfi. So Kit Green, there's a discussion he has with the guy from Rendlesham Forest, Jim Peniston. And Jim says, well, you know, why are you studying experiences? What are you doing? And stuff like that. And he says... We're working on propulsion. He said, ah, oh, bull, you're working on propulsion. Forget it. I mean, you're crazy. You're not working on propulsion. And he said, well, you, maybe I used the wrong word. He said, we're trying to figure out how does the phenomena pop in to our reality and pop out just as quickly. So they have that sort of idea. And yet I don't think they fully understand it because everything I've heard, like you hear about the famous Area 51, Dr. Eric Davis, who's actually an experiencer himself, who's probably he's an astrophysicist, probably knows more about the black world of what they have and what they don't have. And he described the fact that in 1989, they shut the program down. They had recovered saucers and they actually shut the program down because they weren't getting anywhere. They couldn't figure it out. So they put it on the shelf and every seven or eight years, they take it off the shelf and look at it again. So that's the whole thing. So you may have little ins and outs about like the remote viewing program they ran that and they had some success at it. And there may be some real black operation because when they shut the remote viewing program down in 1995, the big story was, well, the CIA shut it down. It wasn't working. And that was because the story was leaking. There was somebody who was about to do a book. So they shut the program down and said it wasn't working and that cut it off. And then everybody said it went to NSA. Everybody said, well, come on, there's no way they're going to shut a program down like this. And it went to NSA. But how far they've gotten, I'm not really sure when it comes to the MK Ultra stuff. There's a lot of you know, stories, I think, that are sort of exaggerated about what they're able to do, that they can come through your computer and get into your mind. I've been at it for 45 years. I've never experienced anything like that. Or they have this thing where people are threatened and killed. And I go, I've been in this for 45 years. I've never been. And I went after the president. I went after these high level CIA people and wrote about them in books and stuff. And I'm not even an American. I mean, if they want to knock me off, they can knock me off any time. I've never experienced any of that kind of sort of real sort of out there theories about the mind control and they can control you and stuff like that. I mean, they may have it, but I think that it's a lot of military bravado. They're putting it out and people are bragging and stuff. I don't think they're as far advanced as some people think they are.
Yeah, that is one of the more interesting conclusions you have made. And that's contrary to those who think we've cracked all this tech and we have a secret space program. You think that they haven't made much progress at all and are still trying to get these little pieces of metal to levitate on a table. And I'm torn because I could absolutely see how before all this psi research and the exploration of consciousness, they had no context for mental phenomenon or controlling a ship in that way. And even once they had that understanding, maybe it takes the highly developed mental mastery of a Tibetan monk to work with this stuff. And if that's the case, I wouldn't be surprised if they haven't been able to get very far. And I agree, consciousness is definitely key, but I'm also interested in that recovered hardware, the physical metamaterials. Obviously, a lot of people are talking about that right now. Richard Dolan talks about the reveals from his contacts that it bends light in a strange way. Some say it has a memory to it and it returns to its shape when you bend it. I hear a story about Linda Mullen Howell once having some and selling it for $35,000. What can you tell us about the qualities of what they have found that's physical and, and how much is of it is there? Is there dozens of pieces, hundreds of pieces? What do you think? The Canadians were actually getting material coming into Canada from the Americans. I talked to the guy who was the metallurgist and I asked him, I said, how much material did you actually handle? And he said, tons of it. And so they were looking at all this stuff. I have a different view on the metamaterials. And I actually wrote Hal Putoff about this because Hal Putoff is sort of the lead guy in terms of getting this stuff analyzed and stuff. And I said to him, I said, Hal, this is a port material. You had this stuff going on in 1972 in your lab with Yuri Geller, that Yuri Geller, there's a famous story told that they went for lunch, Edgar Mitchell and Hal Putoff go for lunch with Yuri Geller and he's eating ice cream. And suddenly his lip is bleeding and he bites down on something and he pulls it out of his mouth. And Edgar Mitchell says, where'd you get that from? That's my, it was an Air Force pin or something that he'd lost in Houston a couple of years before. He said, how did you get that thing? And it was just the front part of the pin. And so they go back to the lab and when they're in the lab, they're standing in the lab and Yuri Geller's in another room and all of a sudden, tink, in behind them, they turn around and the back half of the pin is lying on the floor. And so I said to Hal, I said, Come on, hell, this is a port. I mean, you don't take a flying saucer, come across the galaxy, and then little pieces start falling off the flying saucer. This is total nonsense. This is, I call it the theory of wow. And I think that a lot of what this is, is the intelligence is just trying to mess with us. They want you to go, wow, what's going on? Like, why do UFOs have lights on them? So you can see them. They don't need lights. We don't have lights on our crafts. They do this kind of stuff. And so they're dropping this material. And so I said to hell, I said, this has got to be a port material. They're just dropping this very weird stuff. And everybody's getting all interested and they're, they're looking at this kind of stuff. And what he said, he's, he was always very short in the way he replied. He said, we'll analyze the material one step at a time. So he didn't deny it was a port material. And that's what I say. When you start looking at these pieces, you'll find no two pieces that are the same. They're all different pieces and they all have very, very bizarre characteristics. But I say that they're having this idea, oh, if we can figure out how to, what this piece of metal is made out of. Well, then we can figure out how to build a flying saucer. Well, no, I mean, they may have just put the piece of metal down and it's got these, they put all these weird properties in. It's one of the theory of wow things. It's like we put lights on. Okay, let's drop these pieces of metal. This is to get the monkeys really thinking about what's going on and trying to realize like, you know, physical reality isn't what you think it is because these pieces are all over the place. And I was just at a famous case just last week with this film crew. We were at Falcon Lake, Manitoba. There's a famous case in 1967 where Stephen Mikulak, he's a prospector, is out in the middle of this forest and he's trying to find silver and he's sitting there and this thing lands. There's two crafts. They hover there and then the one lands 
And he's like, what's going on here? So he walks over and the door opens up and he hears these guys talking in, in some strange language. And he tries to talk all these different languages and it doesn't reply. And then it takes off and he gets burned. So it's this very famous case. So we go in on horseback a couple of days ago. They're filming this whole thing. But the thing was, there was metal. Most people don't know. There was metal found at this site as well. And it was silver, 95% pure silver and 5% pure copper. But it had these very bizarre characteristics to it. It wasn't ordinary silver. And the thing is, how did this stuff get in the rock? I mean, did it drop this stuff? Or And then you take a look at the piece that Linda Howe sold, this piece with the bismuth magnesium stuff, where it's all layered and it creates this waveguide. So they're looking at this stuff, and then Tom DeLonge talks about, oh, you get the electrons going across, and we can levitate this piece of stuff off the table. And that is absolute confirmation. They don't get anything. If they are still trying to levitate a little tiny piece of metal off the table, they've got nothing. And that's what you start to see is they're thinking that this is going to be the solution. And I say, no, I think this is going to be weird stuff that they're just trying to drop to get us, because there's pieces all over the place. We were at the University of Arizona in Tucson, and we found a piece in the file, James McDonald's files, from 1939. And again, it was a very bizarre, came out of the sky. This guy saw that it looked like a meteorite coming out of the sky, and it embedded itself in his garden. And it was red hot. They all described the same thing. When these UFOs drop this metal, it's molten when it drops, and it's very hot. And when it cools down, the people grab this metal, and they think they got a piece of a flying saucer, and we're going to build a flying saucer now. And he pulled it out of his garden. And it looks like a spike with sort of a round end on it, like bubbles, almost like the, the, it was, it was uh, sort of bubbling or, or still molten or whatever. And he grabs this thing and he keeps it. And in the 1960s, he gives it to his daughter who lives in Tucson, Arizona. This is when NASA is going to the moon and they have a lab in Tucson. So she takes it to the lab and they have it analyzed. And it's the same bizarre thing. It's 95% pure nickel, nothing out of the sky at that time. And like planes that has that type of metal. And then they cut off a piece off the end of it to analyze it. And they discover that there's a copper core in the middle of this thing. So this is 1939 already. This is long before all this sort of stuff happens. You get piles and piles and piles of these pieces. None of them are the same. They're all different. They're all very weird. They have weird isotopes. I think it's, it's the theory of, wow, it's just to get us to think about it. It's like a ports. You know, these things where they drop coins or strange things. And I think the mistake is to think, oh, if we get this piece of metal... We're going to be able to build a flying saucer because I'll guarantee you no two pieces are the same. Yes. And there's yeah. hundreds of pieces, hundreds of pieces from all <laughs> around the world. And we even get some cases where I did some articles and I said, oh, this stuff is being excreted out of these UFOs. And one of the most famous UFO contactees is a guy by the name of Chris Bletso out of North Carolina who Warner Brothers is going to do $80 million movie on this guy. So he's got some pretty bizarre stories. He said, no, you got it wrong. It doesn't. It drips off the UFO. And I said, what do you mean it drips? How do you know that? And he said, well, because this orb came, it was 11 feet off the ground, flew across my driveway, and this metal was dripping off the orb. And I scooped up all the metal, and we've even got photographs of this metal. And they take it and analyze it, and they go, oh, what is this? Oh, cool. And it's almost like crop circles. Like, why would you not just give the message instead of doing crop circles? Because people are going to go in and go, oh, my God, what is this? How did they put this thing down? Or I always tell Linda Howe with the cattle mutilations. Like, why did they take the blood out of the cow? Why did they take out every single drop of blood out of the cow? Because if they didn't, nobody would pay any attention to it. It's got to be really weird. Why did they do the bizarre cut marks and stuff like that? And why did they get the cow? They fly off with the cow. They've got it. And they do the mutilation or whatever. And then they fly back into the war zone and drop the cow from 100 feet up into the farmer's front yard. Why would they do that? 
because they know people like Linda Howe and all the other researchers are going to go and take photographs and they want the photographs taken. They want everybody to go, what the heck is going on? And then you suddenly realize that a lot of cattle mutilations, if not all of them, are downwind and downstream from contamination or nuclear test sites. And you start getting these patterns. But what they're doing is they're making it. It's almost like there was a book called The Trickster. And it's the trickster phenomenon. It's the idea that, or I say, people said to me, oh, it's not a circus. Don't make this into a circus. And I said, yeah, it is a circus, like Jesus Christ. If Jesus hadn't healed people, walked on water and risen from the dead, you wouldn't know who he was. You do the trick, you get people's attention, and then you deliver the message. Mm. Yes, man. I love all this stuff. And that idea of weird plasma balls floating through the sky, dripping strange metals is right up my alley. And I know you mentioned the 70 modalities to get into that other state of consciousness. And I agree. We got to be very cross-disciplinary when it comes to looking at this stuff. Have you ever studied the claims of alchemists? Maybe they'd have some insight into some of the strange, almost fused, but very pure metals, because this is exactly the kind of thing they claim to be synthesizing in secret in a lot of their lore. And uh, a couple of them are, are emerging now more so than they used to. And the things they have to say, it'd be like, man, that's the kind of guy I would really love to analyze some of these metals. Any experience there? No, I haven't got any experience, but I'm writing it down. I'm going to check that out because that is true. That's what you have to do is you have to find people who are sort of on the leading edge and assume that they're telling the truth. They may be deluded with whatever belief system they're coming up. And that's the only way you're going to discover things because that's my whole left brain, right brain thing where, and I always sort of hammer science with this because neurology doesn't talk about this. This is this idea of the left brain interpreter that it was discovered when they had the split brain. If you're familiar with the split brain research, it was done by Gazaniga after they won the Nobel prize for split brain research. They started to do these tests where they would take the split brain people and they would send signals to the right and left brain. They would People had their corpus callosum cut because of this epilepsy thing. And then the two brains are separated. And that was the first mistake people make. They say, oh, the brain does this, the brain does that. And I said, no, the brain doesn't do anything. According to Gizanaga, there could be potentially millions of independent modules in the brain. Uh, there's at least two brains and then all these independent modules that all work together like cells in the body to perform a task. It's not one thing doing this. It's all working together. And so what they would do is they would send these signals to the right brain and the left brain. And the left brain is the rational analytical ego brain where the language is. And the right brain is sort of like the female unity brain that gets the downloads and stuff like that. And when we can shut down the left brain, that's when the right brain picks up the signal and is able to bring it in. So they were doing these experiments where they would do stuff like they would send a signal to the right brain and the right brain runs the left side of the body and vice versa. So they would send us a message to the right brain, which can't talk, and it would say, pick up the Coke, drink the Coke. And so the left hand would pick up the Coke and drink the Coke. And then they would say to the person, why did you pick up the Coke? So now that because the brains are separated, you're talking to the left brain because that's where the voice is. The right brain knows what happened, but it can't talk. And the left brain is, has no idea, but the left brain, they call it the interpreter. It's actually, there's some uglier words you could use for it. The left brain interpreter. And what it does is when your worldview is shattered. So when, when you see something like someone, you're, you've gone through school and somebody comes up and says, oh, I saw a UFO. Immediately, there's a hole in your worldview. Suddenly, there's a massive hole there. And what the left brain interpreter does is it makes the situation palatable again. It'll fill the hole immediately. And it'll say, oh, you just imagined it. You made it up. And this is what they found is that when they asked the guy, why did you pick up the Coke? The left brain interpreter would immediately make something up. 
And this is what people don't realize is that the left brain, the rational analytical brain, a lot of the stuff that comes out of there is made up. It's made up by this left brain interpreter. It's filling the holes in the worldview to keep it consistent. And so the person would say, oh, I was thirsty or whatever. And they would send these signals. And Gizenega said it was always wrong every single time, but it could pass a lie detector test. And once the left brain interpreter made a decision as to bringing the worldview back to the worldview it believed before, you couldn't convince it. And that's where I say skepticism comes from. That's left brain interpreter. That's the skeptic saying, oh, I'm going to find an alternate explanation for this paranormal phenomenon that you're talking about. And I'm going to return it to the physical worldview where it's random biological robots in a meaningless universe. And it's all nuts and bolts and there's no consciousness and this is all nonsense. And then then they feel happy again because the world is consistent. Their old worldview is back. So that's where I say when you start looking at the leading edge and these people who are on the leading edge, if you understand what they're doing or not even understand if you start looking at what they're doing you start to see patterns that they're basically doing the same thing because that's what happened with the contact modalities i had the my daydream modality where i had it and so i was very interested and i started to do research on downloads and i suddenly realized all these musicians had to have downloads and i actually wrote a book with no musical background on where a lot of the songs come from and i found it very important to keep in mind this left brain right brain thing that People who are very creative are not the intelligent people. There's actually a study that was done. The, uh, it was called the Terman study. It was the longest longitudinal study ever done where they take all these kids in 1910. They start looking at the top kids in California, the highest IQ kids, 140 IQ, 180 IQ and up. And they found out absolutely not creative at all. They only had two Nobel Prizes and the two people that won the Nobel Prize, Alvarez was one of them, they had been rejected by the study. And so what you get is very rational analytical people are not very creative. The creative people are the ones you've got to watch. Same as the experiencers. So you see someone who's on the leading edge and you assume that what they're doing may have some truth to it and you start looking at it. And that's what I did with the modalities is I started to realize, oh, it's all the same thing. They're all doing basically the same thing. They're doing this shutting down the, the rational analytical left brain, whether it's through meditation or through hypnosis or through psychedelics or whatever. And they shut that off. They make the left brain interpreter and the, the ego and all that stuff go for coffee. And then we can work with the signal. The left brain creates a lot of signal, a lot of noise, and you can't pick up the signal. So the signal is there for everybody. But because we're so much in the physical world, we're so much into our ego mind and we're so much into rational analytical, believing what we see, that we can't pick up the signal. And so all these modalities are just basically ways to reduce the noise so that the person can pick up the signal. Right on. Well, let me ask you this, because this seems like a very strange way for our brains to be compiled. And there are those researchers who talk about ancient engineering of humans, the ancient aliens thing that we were, you know, engineered or spliced together in some fashion. And it is interesting that our senses do filter out more than uh, they let in, almost like we have limiters on our perception or on our DNA. And of course, it takes great effort to kind of get to those higher planes and access them. Do you think there's anything in there about potential genetic engineering at some point in the distant past? And maybe that relates to why we have such a hard time with this stuff or why these beings seem to maybe trying to be coaxing us into evolving further. Yeah, that's what I believe is that they are a lot of experiences you talk. They'll say they'll talk about the two strand, the 12 strand DNA and all this kind of stuff that they're altering our DNA. And what you see is the altruistic thing. 
that I say whatever the phenomena is, I can guarantee you it's going to be a lot less physical than you think it is. It's going to be a lot less spiritual than you think it is. And it's not going to have a hint of capitalism. In it. It's this altruistic thing that they're here trying to guide us along. And again, it may not even be beings. I mean, if you get into real consciousness, there is only one thing. There's no time. There's no space. It's all one thing. We are it. We're talking to our higher self and we can create these sort of seemingly divisional things. But it's all the one thing. It's all connected. Like if you do five methoxy DMT, you end up in this sort of white world where there is no structure. There's not, not none of that kind of stuff. And it's all one and it's all love. So it all goes back <laughs> to the same sort of thing. And what you get with experiences, they'll tell all these stories. In fact, I had just one interview with the guy and he was telling this story. He says, you know, when I was a kid, I was in this room and this being comes to him later on in his life and she's wearing a wig. He said it's a being, but he knows it's female. He can't really tell just by the feeling. He knows it's female and she's wearing this wig. And then he says she was the same one that was on board the ship who was teaching us how to levitate stuff and how to move stuff around with our minds. And I said, oh, yeah, everybody, he said, everybody describes that. I said, yeah, everybody describes that. So you get these stories of kids. They take kids when they're young. And the reason they take kids when they're young is because when you're 25 years old, it's a total waste of time. Your mindset is made, all your biases are there, and you'd need a big rubber boots and a big shovel to dig down deep enough into somebody's consciousness to put an idea. You pick up kids when they're very young, and that's when they start to train these kids. So all experiencers, people who have been on the ship, they don't get taken at 25. If you, you say to them, you know, when did you have your first experience? And when you start to regress them, you find out they were taken when they were like two years old you know, three years old and they're called lifers. It goes through their whole life and you need to get them before their, their mindset comes in. So I don't know if that answers your question, but they're coming in and they're helping do a lot of stuff. They're moving it. But I, again, I don't think it's just aliens. I think because I went across the modalities and you get the same sort of thing that people are like with the physical seance, which I think is a very important thing for people to study where you get people like Tesla is a big one, comes in a lot of physical experience seance things where they're trying to help us develop stuff they're giving us ideas they're on the other side trying to help us so i don't think it's just an et thing i think maybe even be our higher self that we can get in the field it's all our higher self it's all the one thing that we're part of the one a spark of the divine or whatever you want to call it and that it's all moving and you need the left brain you need that physical thing because you're not going to survive in the physical world without it so it has this necessary component that you know you need to say oh there may be something around the next corner the fear the all the stuff that the left brain brings into you and to analyze things and stuff like that but we're sort of at the point now where the analysis is sort of overrun gaia and it's become so left brain the world that we're sort of maybe on the verge of actually destroying ourselves and that we've got to balance it out with the female right brain, which looks more at the one that whatever you do to the planet, you do to everybody else. We didn't believe that even, even in ecology it doesn't even go back a hundred years. The idea of ecology that we can before it was the biblical thing was, you know, take things and use them. You are the, the masters of this kind of stuff. And so we were just sort of using it up. So this idea has been whether it's the field that has brought this across, this ecology idea. And what you'll find with experiences, a lot of experiencers are big time environmentalists or they're animal rights activists. It's almost, I don't know what the percentage, would be very, very high. Number of experiencers who are vegetarians is very high. A number of experiencers who had near-death experiences, 37%. That's almost eight times the national average. 
or experiencers who will describe exactly what's described in near-death experiences. There's a very close correlation between near-death experiences and the UFO phenomena, that UFO people will describe being in the field and 40% of all UFO experiencers will say at one point during their experience, they knew the answer to everything in the universe. And people who've had the near-death experience will say the same thing. Or people who have are experiencers, 50% of them will say they were healed by the phenomena. Either they or somebody in their family was healed, and 50% of them can heal people. They claim they now they can heal people. Near-death experiences goes from an average of 8% in the average population that say they can heal people. People who've had near-death experiences, it's 70% of people who've had near-death experiences claim they can heal other people. So you see these correlations and that's why I think it's all basically the same thing. It's just almost like Bashar, if you're familiar with the famous mm -hmm. alien Chandler, he says it's all just permission slips. Whatever you think works for you, go for it. And if you, it's the beliefs thing, when you believe that you can get into it and you can shut off the left brain, then you can do it. But I believe everybody's basically doing the same thing. It's just a different, especially if you go to the fact that everything is consciousness, then it's all goes back to this consciousness thing and it's, you get in touch with it and all the answers are in the field. You have all these dead people who are trying to help through physical mediumship stuff. And even when you get on, the one experiencer told me she was on board the ship and you, you get this connection with death on board the ship where people's dead relatives are brought on to talk to them or their dead dog is on the ship and stuff like that. And they're usually not very happy about it. And the one woman, this Sherry Wilde, who they're about to do a movie on her, she talks about being on the ship and Albert Einstein was on there and Albert Schweitzer was on there. And who was the third one? Tesla was on there. And there was the girl in World War II who wrote the book, the Jewish girl who was wrote this famous book. Took and notes Frank? Of, yeah. And Frank was on board. Oh, and I said to her, and this is the whole thing about this, is it consciousness or is it physical? So I said, Sherry, let me ask you a question. You saw these people on board the ship when you were 15 years old? She said, yeah. I said, can I ask you, did they look physical? She says, I know where you're going with this. So let me tell you what. It may have been a real good hologram, but they sure look physical to me. And so you get these crossovers that are so bizarre, but it's, and that's what I'm trying to do now is put all the connections together because people get almost into one field. That's where it has to be interdisciplinary. So somebody may get into say LSD is the thing and they become like the LSD religion and that's all they're studying and they don't realize the correlations between other types of things. And so I try to stay as wide as I can in looking at all the paranormal phenomena and trying to find the sort of the similarities. And that's what I find. They're all very similar. They just are sort of like different names to them and people sort of turn them into religions. And I think you've got to stay really wide with this stuff. And then the answers are pretty clear that we are getting help from the other side, whether it's spirits or dead people. And you'll get this people describing, you know, where they're about to go in a car accident and suddenly they hear their dead father or brother or husband or wife, give them a warning and stuff like that. And that's the thing is it's a bizarre world, but it is teaching us what reality is about. And that's my bottom line. I'm really not interested in being able to do this kind of stuff. I'm not interested in seeing UFOs or, you know, even physical mediumship. I said to Kai Muga, who is one of the top physical medium in Germany, I said, well, I'll come down and attend your seance and to watch. And he said, no, you're not coming to watch. You're coming to be part of it. And this is the thing. I'm not really interested. I'm more interested. To me, it's always been like a chess game. I was very good as a kid playing chess when I was very young. I was actually in elementary. I was playing in the high school. And to me, it's like a chess game. It's like ultimate reality. How does this fit in? Put the pieces together and basically trust that people are telling the truth, which I think is basically the bottom line that people are describing 
what they are experiencing and they may have it all messed up in terms of their belief systems but you start seeing these real correlations and i think they do describe to you what ultimate reality is and how it works <laughs> that's a great summary and i do love that data the survey data of the experiencers and what we can glean from that and it is important to stay wide in looking at this thing and not drawing a ton of conclusions and i also agree with you that at the highest level yes it is all consciousness i've had experiences that crack that open. But if you're being eaten by a tiger or tortured in a basement or having your semen extracted on a spaceship, it's going to feel very separate. And I don't know how useful that it's all one higher understanding is in those moments. And beings should be able to be as negative as people in the game we're playing on this level, right? They could have nefarious intentions. I know ultimately it's all consciousness, but on this level of the game we play where we pretend that it isn't or we're not aware of it, uh, wh what do you think the intentions of some of these beings are? Well, that's where I differ from everybody. I say there's no good and evil. It's all one thing. It's all neutral. We put the stuff. So I'll give you two examples. So one is the abduction experience. So people say, ah, oh, these, uh, you know, we're victims. It's just terrible. They're taking us on board the ship. You take the free survey, which looks at 3000 experiences, and you see that only 9% believe that the aliens that they encountered were actually evil. And Ray Hernandez, who's running this study, went back to them and said, so why do you think they're evil? And he said, because they scared the daylights out of me. It was an eight foot reptilian standing in my bedroom. And he said, that's it. That's it. And I asked a lot of people, so there's a lot of people who do regressions. So I asked, like Mary Roddell, who's done 3,000 regressions of UFO experiences. I said, Mary, if you regress all these people back to birth and you ask them, at any point in the past, did you agree to be in this situation? How many people would answer yes? She said, 100%. And so I asked Kathy Martin. Kathy Martin is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. So I said to her, I said, Kathy, what do you say about this soul contract thing that basically we agree to everything that's coming in here. And she said, I always thought about that. She said, so I actually had myself regressed and I actually heard myself, the voice come out of my mouth and said, I agree to this. And the other thing that I said, I had four major events. One of the major events I had was watching Dr. Michael Newton. And I have always been blown away by Michael Newton. He's got 7,000 regressions. He invented the life between life whole thing. There's now 35,000 regressions and everybody says the same thing in these regressions. It's, you can just, it's like a playbook. You can go through there. And this is the whole thing where one of the documentaries was being done, this girl's in Auschwitz and the guy's filming it. And then she said, oh, this thing about the agreement to be in this situation. And he said, that's the most inappropriate thing I ever heard in my life. But Newton is big on this, this whole idea that when you get down to it, it's all experience and that you learn from whatever the experience is. And it's this idea that everything is experience. And we like to play the victim. We like to say, you know, we're the good guys and there's bad aliens and there's bad Russians and there's bad Chinese. And all we're doing is changing the noun. Usually it's like it used to be the Japanese were the bad guys. And we dropped two atomic bombs. So we can say people will say to me, oh, the aliens, like they're abducting people. They're evil. And I say, let me tell you what, when they dropped the first atomic bomb and melt 100,000 people into the sidewalk, or if they firebomb Japan, kill and cremate 80,000 people in two nights alive, give me the alien, alien, the petition for the evil alien. I'll sign it until then. We have met the enemy and he is us. We are the enemy. We are the ones that manifest. And I say that all that is evil in the world, and I maintain this, I've never seen any exception. All that is evil in the world is the mistaken belief in separation. When you believe, when I believe 
that you are different from me and I am better than you and you are my problem, then I have the right to steal your stuff and I have a right to kill you and I have a right to get you as the enemy. And all we're doing is changing now. So it used to be the Japanese and then it was the North Vietnamese and they were the bad guys and the only good gook was a dead gook. And we were dropping bombs and we were going to drop atomic bombs and wipe them out and stuff like that. And now suddenly they started making Nike runners and now they're good. They're our friends. And it's like, what happened to the evil? Did it evaporate? And so I say it's this mistaken belief in separation that causes all evil. And it's if you believe that everything is one, then doing anything to anybody that is bad is like taking a hammer and smashing your thumb. It doesn't make any sense. But people don't believe. Theoretically, they say, oh, yeah, we're all one. But, yeah, there's still separation and there's evil guys and we need to kill these guys. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a reasonable response and a good example to illustrate it. And so we started this talking about what these people have found, the metamaterials, but also the bodies. and. Then later we talked about how they're not physical because people are seeing things as cat people or mantids or greys. Well, what about those bodies? I mean, didn't Kit Green famously say that he couldn't get briefed into the alien autopsy program? There's some kind of bodies out there, aren't there? Okay, so the bodies, yeah, there are bodies. That's the whole idea. That's the same thing as a ports. They come out of the spirit world and they drop these apports into our world. So I would say the bodies are like a ports. For example, if you're into the fear thing, when when you're talking to somebody of abduction, you're going to say, uh, did they scare you? Uh, did they probe you? Did it hurt? Were you really scared? When I get somebody on board and they're talking, I say, let me ask you a question. Did the alien have any clothes on? And they go, no. And I say, let me ask you, did it have any sex organs? And they go, no, thinking about it. No, they didn't have any sex organs. And I say, don't you think that's kind of strange? And he go, yeah, it's kind of strange. And I say, do they have a belly button? No, they don't have a belly button. Do they have nipples? No. And then the big one I always say is, did the alien ever get any older? And I have Betty Andreessen, who's one of the most famous, 1946, her and her husband, both had their first experience in 1946. So I asked them, you were 1946, you were a little six-year-old girl or whatever. Now you're like 80 years old. You changed this whole thing. Did the alien ever get any older? And the husband said, no, never got any older, but aliens live a long time. And we start making these excuses. And that's the whole thing. The aliens, when you start asking, the alien is always the same. It's always, and that's the whole thing. If it's an actual physical, biological being, it should age. It doesn't age. The hybrids seem to age, but the beings themselves don't seem to age. And you see all these bizarre things. They don't have sex organs. Nobody ever sees them eating or sleeping. So the bodies are like a port. So yeah, when they're in the physical world, and it's even the thing, there's a guy by the name of, they call him Tyler D. I know his real name, but he's a NASA guy who's probably the leading expert on UFOs inside NASA. And he's written in a book called American Cosmic. If you haven't read it, you got to read it. Because Kit Green says, if he were to take off the first couple chapters, last couple chapters, that's what Kit Green is thinking. It's written by uh, Diana Pasolka. Yeah, I've interviewed her and I was wondering who those, uh, those uh, secret sources were. Yeah, I know. I've I had a conversation with Tyler. And so you remember the story. It was actually my friend who took Tyler to that site in New Mexico and showed him this medal and he became obsessed with it. So he takes Diane Pasolka and he takes actually took Gary Nolan was the other guy he took to the site. He blindfolds him when he goes to the site. Now, when they start talking, if you look in the book, they call it the gifting field. And that changes the whole perspective. Is this an actual crash where we shot it down with radar or these aliens came across the galaxy and then they got hit by lightning? And, you know, we got all these bizarre things that we sort of 
impose our own worldview on, on what's happening. And they call it the gifting field. And that's one of the theories that I think is I'm looking more at all the time is maybe this was all intentional, that they actually intended to crash. And this is like an apport thing. And it's the same thing. It's the theory of wow. It's trying to get you to go, wow, like this is pretty bizarre. And look at this paranormal stuff and look at this paranormal stuff. And it just keeps you banging away at the physical universe in terms of the fact that eventually everybody's going to say, no, there's got to be something beyond this physical universe. And it's because we get obsessed with this stuff. You can't let it go once it comes. So they call it the gifting field. And that's what I say is the thing with the apports or with the crop circles. It's all this gifting thing. They're dropping these little clues. They're not allowed to come in and actually do the homework for you, but they give these little clues, these little hints, and they force you to think about this kind of stuff. And that's what's happening. The physical we're a biological robot in a meaningless universe. It's all starting to break down because there's so many of these bizarre stories where people start to say, I don't think this is as physical. And you talk to Jacques Vallée. Jacques Vallée will bang on the table when people ask him. you bang on the table. He's, this is not solid. We believe it's a solid world. You know, we used to believe the world was flat. That all came from the rational analytical mind that believed it was flat because you can put a level anywhere on the world and it's flat and you can measure it and you can tell when the sun's going to come up and the sun is going around the earth. Because you can predict when it's going to rise, when it's going to set. And we make all these assumptions. And what this is doing is breaking down all these belief systems to say, no, it's not the world you think it is. And the more that people get, especially with psychedelics, I think it's going to be the one that's going to absolutely turn the world around. Because there's piles of people getting into psychedelics and they're starting to realize there's these non-local states and you can get in them. And when you get in there, people will say, this is more real than the real world which means this is the illusion, no matter what you might want to think. And you get into even to the idea of the five methoxy DMT, where you seem to go back to consciousness. You're in a light field. There is no form. There are no beings. There are no psychedelic patterns. There is just this love and this sense of supreme oneness or a divine being and stuff like that. And I think that's what's going to change it. Because you now have in Canada, marijuana is legal and you have a lot of places where psilocybin is legal now in the United States. I think that's going to change. You can have more and more people. As Max Planck said, the world is not changed by convincing other people. It advances science and I believe ufology and paranormal advance one funeral at a time. <laughs> Cheers to all that. Yes. And American Cosmic. Great book, and I agree with you on the psychedelics thing, too. The gifting fields, that is really good context. It kind of explains why they could just go out to this place and find some metal from some previous crash so easily. I always thought that was a little weird. My thought was maybe it was planted, and maybe it was planted, but not by the people who took her out. Maybe it's, it is, as you say, the gifting fields. And the Tyler experience, I think I think it's him who, who mentions it in the book, but saying that in his uh, office where they had him working when they brought him in, he could feel something behind this wall trying to read his thoughts or trying to project thoughts. That was always pretty provocative to me. But Yeah, where they've got it sealed off. I'll tell you one last story before we end here. Yes, uh, yes. Tyler, I'm big into the download thing, that you can get in the field and you can pull material out of the field. These were a lot of Nobel Prizes. A lot of the inventions, hologram, the laser, all these things came that way. And so when I was talking to Tyler, I met him in a cottage in Pennsylvania. And he had this invention. He sold his company for 100 million bucks. He's got 40 patents. The main one he had had to do, he was going to be put on the space shuttle. And they wouldn't put it on. He got some scientists to sign off. He said, yeah, I'm putting this thing on the space shuttle. And he actually got it on there. He said, Grant, I'll tell you what. The last thing I remember, I had the idea in my head in the morning. The last thing I remember the night before was a hooded figure standing at the end of the bed. 
Now, if you look at the literature, the hooded figure is always the wisdom being. So I said to him, because I seen these reports, I said, so could you see its face? And he goes, no, I couldn't see its face. And I said, oh, you should be regressed. You should go to Yvonne Smith and you should go back to that event and see what the being was telling you. And so he had that being at the end of the and the morning he wakes up with this idea. And as you see in American Cosmic, it goes to the Pentagon and the one star general stands up and says, who came up with this idea? And Tyler tells a story in, in American Cosmic that he does the download stuff that he says, I sleep for eight hours. I get up and then I have you have to go back to bed for an hour and I go back to bed for an hour and then I get up. And I get a big glass of water and I go and sit in the sun and I start to drink the water and they start to talk to me. So he says that he's getting material and he's got 40 patents and he believes it's coming from them. Same as Gary Nolan, who's the guy who's doing the DNA stuff for to this. He was nice. No, not with two stars anymore, but at Stanford, who's doing the DNA stuff with Kit Green. And he says, I don't know how it works. But I know how to make it work. And he uses the same principle that a lot of people use. He says, I work through all the problems. I've tried to figure out, analyze the problems. And then I write down what the problem I need solved. I put it beside the bed and I wake up in the morning and the AI idea is in my head. So they do know. They do know <laughs> this idea of inspiration. And these guys are working. But the problem is it's all secret. So it really doesn't help anybody. It's like the Bible says, what profiteth a man? if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. So I let everything go. I don't really cover up anything. It doesn't help if I figure it out and I don't tell you or anybody else. The idea is to figure it out and spread it as widely as you can to raise the consciousness of the earth before we blow the place up. <laughs> right on. Cheers to that. Man, you are one of the greats, and I appreciate that last story. It has been a real treat to talk to you today. I'm sure people are going to love it. Remind them where to get your books, your website, your YouTube, and Anything else you're going to be coming out with next, wherever the research is going? My main two places you can get me, I have White House UFO, my YouTube channel. I've got about 500 interviews and type stuff I've done there. And Presidential UFO is my Facebook site where I publish sort of the stuff happens from day to day, the bizarre stories and downloads and stuff like that. So those would be the two, Presidential UFO Facebook and the White House UFO YouTube channel. Right on. Well, you are the man. You know a lot about a lot, and I appreciate your time. Take care out there. Beautiful. Thank you, Greg. How about that, all you cool cats and kittens? I consider that a great way to round out the offerings for September. Grant is the best. Probably my favorite figure in the ufology field that I hadn't interviewed yet over the years. So I'm very glad we could add him to the archive. I think he's wise to focus on the consciousness aspect of the technology and the beings communications. And really, the point he made in the past that when you plot it on the timeline, it's interesting that the MKUltra mind-cracking programs all seem to get legs right after the UFO spike and the stories of the recovered crafts and the bodies. Yes, the end of World War II and Project Paperclip are also in that mix, so that adds a big question mark in there if you think the Germans had unlocked that technology at that time. Or maybe it was given to them, who knows, but... I do love Grant's work, and he has such impressive recall for many threads of ufology history and all the players involved. We talked about this more in the second hour, but I would say, though, that when you conclude that it's all consciousness and separation is an illusion, it's something I do agree is true, but once you've come to grips with that as the big picture, we kind of have to return to speaking about the world from our vantage point in order to really talk about it. 
If we're just here for a range of experiences, then sure, with infinite options, we might choose to manifest for a very painful life that's going to feel very, very real in some instances. But if we all just float back up to the big spirit soup, why not? We've heard this before, that the big material world is just a sandbox of sorts. But if we want to talk about the things going on in that sandbox, we got to at least Think of it as real so we can better assess the actions of these beings or our leaders or really anything that is interacting with us and where it all falls on the moral spectrum, quote unquote, which might be as illusionary as matter itself, but it is still a way in which we measure things from this human material plane vantage point. Everything in this dimension is made to feel real, which makes it hard to assess that moral spectrum as a foundation for reality or not, but it seems to be a type of rule that affects our future incarnations. So in that sense, it has consequences, even if it is all just a game. This is what they say, but I also want morality and karma and our actions to matter, because otherwise we excuse a lot of very sick and twisted behavior as just an experience, and I absolutely understand every story needs a villain, and that's just another role to play. Conflict and difficulty and suffering are parts of the game, and the sour makes the sweet that much sweeter. But the heroes, the protagonists, they're not called to action if they aren't outraged by the actions of that villain. Cameron Poe doesn't just watch Cyrus the Virus and Diamond Dog take the plane and sit back and say, well, it's all just experience. What's the harm? So I do think Grant is right. I've seen the light, but it's just hard to talk about things from that perspective. And I want to know what these guys are up to. It was really interesting to hear him talk about not only the metamaterials, but also the bodies as some form of alien apports. That connects ufology right to the occult, and that's a theme that has a lot of merit to me. Interesting take that the bodies themselves could be a ports, opposed to just the metals. And if we ever recovered one alive, then even more so. Like, how does that work? But either way, big thanks to Grant for his time. If you heard it and you liked it, let him know. Also, check out his website and his YouTube channel, where most of the action is these days. In terms of today's show, the first hour was pretty jam-packed, and so was the second. We talked more and more about that consciousness thing, and I pushed back a little bit more than usual, but it still went well. I thought the points he made were very insightful. We also got into, what do these beings want? Are they really all living in oneness, quote-unquote? And what about the Invisible College? Seems like there's some stuff to know about portals that they've been researching, we talked about Mission Rama, Mount Shasta, and Zendras. We talked about my labs, abductions, and military budgets. And of course, occult experience, spirits, and polarity, let's say. The portal stuff was fascinating, and I think I got some leads on other people to possibly interview after some of those names he mentioned. If you're only here in the first hour of THC, I know I make it sound very complete, but there's always a whole second hour to these interviews, and I would love for you to hear it. So help me help you and get a Plus membership. You can do it right on my website at thehiresidechats.com, or you could do it through Patreon. It's eight bucks a month, five full two-hour shows, 
and a monthly joint session episode that's just me talking about the forum posts and the questions posed by the inner circle of members. I saw some comments on the Michael Wan episode from people who loved it and didn't know there was a second hour. So as much as I talk about it and as hard as that is for me to believe, it made me think that maybe I'm lazy with my plus pitch and I don't really spell it out every time. So just consider it. You don't have to have a subscription forever just to get in there and see what you're missing and toss me a few bones. In other news, as I mentioned in the joint session show, Sally Fallon Morell's new book, The Contagion Myth, written with Dr. Tom Cowan, has been banned on Amazon two days before it was supposed to release. They had thousands of pre-orders, and it was number one in its category, which was shocking to me considering how outside the box this material is, but it's banned. When, if they want to worry about people being deceived, start with the rampant issue of fake reviews and bribes and this, that, and the other that's made the Amazon rating system almost useless without using a third-party website that rates products for authenticity. They don't seem to care about that, but they don't want you to read the wrong book. <laughs> and I also said this already too, but very few companies have profited off of COVID as much as Amazon has. How funny, this is the kind of book they target, right? But either way, Gordon White and I will be doing a live Zoom hangout with Sally about the book, plus members will be able to join us live and even ask Sally a few questions of their own towards the end. It is a pretty special event. It's my way of saying thank you for reciprocating with me. October 6th at 6 p.m. I'll be emailing everyone the link before the event, a couple days before. So keep an eye on your inbox or join Plus quickly if you haven't already. I should also mention that I was back on the Conspiracy Farm podcast this past week. I do love talking with those guys. They are a lot of fun. Check that out if you like hearing me on the other side of the mic which a decent amount of people seem to enjoy, which always surprises me, really, because I feel so behind compared to the guests we have, and I'm just a regular guy. But I'm way more comfortable doing it than I used to be, and it's really just the best and only way to further the reach of THC. We're doing great, but when I was on Chris Jericho's show in particular, or even a couple of others I've done, like Rude Jude on SiriusXM, there was a noticeable bump in new people checking out the show, and I am super confident that if people who like this kind of thing just find us, then they will definitely be into it. So I need to do more of that. I need to make the rounds as much as I can. If you listen to other shows that you want me to get on, then let them know. That is how Jericho even happened. He asked who he should be getting on to talk weird paranormal stuff, and enough people said me that he shot me an email. And that was a hell of a life experience, so put the word out if you'd want to help me, because I want to close out the end of this year with a bang. I want to do these guest spots when our recent shows are as solid as ever, and I think that's right now. Anyway, very happy with today's episode and the episodes of September. Michael Wan, Phoenix Aurelius, Whitney Webb, Sylvie Ivanova, we were not messing around. But I guess we'll call this meeting of the Midnight Society closed. Very psyched for the upcoming interviews I'm working on, but that is for another day. Much love, take care of you and yours, and big thanks to Grant Cameron. It was a serious pleasure. I've done my part. Your move, alien apporters, disclosure deceivers, and inner circle of the Invisible College. 
your fucking Woke up this morning with light in my eyes And then realized it was dark outside It was a light coming down from the sky I don't know who or why Must be those strangers that come every night Whose saucer-shaped light put people up tight Leave blue-green footprints that glow in the dark I hope they get home all right Hey, Mr. Spaceman Won't you please take me along I won't do anything wrong Hey, Mr. Spaceman Won't you please This morning I was feeling quite weird I had flies in my beard My toothpaste was smeared I opened my window They'd written my name Said, so long, we'll see Uh-huh.